0: Alright, hello and welcome back to the podcast um, and to the Matthew study. So we're going to be doing chapters 3 and 4. This is, um, chapter 3 is John the Baptist, Um, chapter 4 is the start of Jesus' ministry, all the way up until the Sermon on the Mount. We're not going to be covering the Sermon on the Mount today, we're going to be doing that the next day. Anyway, let's get into it. So, in those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand now this already just two verses in is I think something amazing. It kinda of, it, it goes to show like it goes against the whole um the prosperity message we see today. John is sort of like the anti prosperity preacher. You know, you have the, the Joe Osteens, the Kenny Copelands of the world today who are like, if you follow God, he'll give you everything you want. If you follow him if if you follow God, I get a plane, you know that, that, that carry crap. crap um, like it's alright to have nice things you want to get some nice clothes you want to get a couple of nice things I have nice things it's okay to get a nice things but if you're a pastor collecting money that realistically should be going to the poor or the needy or anything else like that the sick the cold the hungry whoever and instead of that money going to them it's going to your sports cars to your planes to your mansions a bit of a nice something nice every now and again for yourself for the family or whoever that's fine I honestly believe that's fine. Treat yourself every now and again. That's fine. But when you're in a position where you can help, where you have the means and the opportunity to help, and you turn around and you say, no, I'm not going to. I'm going to get myself something nice that I don't even need, that I'm not going to use. I'm just going to get it because I want it. Well... I think that's completely up op- the complete opposite of the message um, of the gospel and it's also what we see it's the opposite of what we see with John the Baptist so John was I think Jesus said John was probably one of the greatest men who ever lived and we see what does he do he goes out he lives in the wilderness and you know he's not there in whatever the he's not there in the new Ferrari camels or whatever they had back then you know the Lamborghini horses or <laughs> whatever I don't know but um, he's not out there in the, in the, all the nice things. He's out. He's he's he's, he's out in the wilderness, and we're not co- called to go out in the wilderness. We're not supposed to go wandering around the woods looking for people to go. Hey, have you heard the good word of Jesus Christ? If we did that, we'd probably just scare people, you know. So we're not meant to do that. But we're also it. It shows that John is completely reliant on God in a way. He's we'll see this more in a minute. He's like what what he's wearing. Well, I guess we'll get into that minute. But he's just wearing and eating whatever he finds. He's not going out and getting all the nice stuff. He's wearing it wherever he finds. His lifestyle is based on God. And so he gets only the absolute essentials to live what we need to live in the world, the worldly life. And by worldly life, I don't mean, like, our sin our temptation. I just literally mean our physical needs. Our phys- uh, sustaining... Sus- excuse me. Sustaining ourselves physically. Um and so on and that's really all he's doing he's doing the bare minimum he's not out here with all the fancy stuff with all the jewelry with all of this different crap he's just doing what he needs to do to get by and beyond that he doesn't care he's just here to preach the word of god and i think that's you know it's probably one of the reasons why john was such a great man he didn't allow himself many luxuries he just wanted to preach the word of repentance as well repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and that's another thing as well i want to talk about because that's something i've really talked about I was like, like I just, the, the kingdom of heaven is at his hand. Oh, right, is it? Oh, that's grand. All right, I wonder when it's getting here. Do you know, like, I, I, I never thought about it. I was never like, oh, I wonder what that means. And then I started to wonder, what does that mean? Well, so I'd say some people might think, okay, well, that means, you know, the rapture. That means the end times. And I'm still not sure about my views of the end times, so I won't get into that too much. But that's not what I think it means. I think it means the means by which we get to heaven is on the way. So John preached this. Jesus preached this. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does this mean? It means before this, they were in the Mosaic Covenant and they're still in the Mosaic Covenant at this point in time as he's preaching it. But when Jesus dies, they enter the new covenant, the Grace Covenant. This is a covenant by which anyone can enter into the kingdom of God. Unfortunately, most people won't. All are sinners and have fallen short of glory of God. And we all need a saviour. We all need Jesus. And a lot of people just don't accept him. Very few do, even though like there's very few among the people who do claim to follow him. Among those people, there are very few who actually follow him. So there's very few people who will enter into the kingdom of God. But what Jesus and what John are saying is, the means by which you shall be able to enter into the kingdom of heaven are close. Because this is the start of Jesus' ministry. Just traditionally speaking, I believe it's about three years later, he would die on the cross for us. And three days later, he would rise from the dead. And of course, we see that number three. So three, I don't think the three-year ministry is actually a biblical concept. I think that is just traditional but it's not ridiculous it's a nice tradition I think because the number three about perfection he rose on the third day the trinity all of this different stuff we were talking about um in the last uh study which if you're watching the video by the way um I'd just go to the podcast not the videos because the videos are always low quality I was actually watching a bit of the stream back on the other day and uh, like a bit of it was missing because of bad internet so I might just be doing recordings from now on I'm not sure we'll see but anyway it's nice to get these longer stuff not these longer stuff things these longer things done anyway for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah saying The voice of the one crying in the wilderness prepare ye the way of the Lord to make his path straight So this actually really confused me because I'm reading the King James um, And there's no quotation marks I don't know if they just didn't have them in the English language back then But there's no quotation marks in this So I don't know whether when John stopped speaking there So I was like wait what? But yeah no, so it's um, Isaiah is the prophet Isaiah And So John was being foretold by Isaiah, Isaiah prophesied about John, which just in a way kind of goes to show who Jesus was or how important Jesus is, because Jesus is so important that the guy who prophesied about him is himself prophesied about, if you get me, it's like, you know, okay, this guy's coming so important, I need to tell, I need to talk about the guy who's going to talk about him you know sort of like a trickle down of um, importance or power if you get me so I, I think that's that's interesting I might be looking a bit too much into that but I I, I think if that's the case I think that's very interesting and sorry I know I'm speaking very fast so I'm very passionate about this and we have two chapters to get through although I might I don't know we'll see if 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 I'm if, if this is getting on a bit and I haven't got through the full two chapters I might just leave it off and get to like just do chapter three and then do chapter four the next one I don't know we'll see where am I and the same john had his raiment of camel's hair and a leather girdle about his loins and his meat was locusts and wild honey so yeah as i was saying before his meat is locusts and wild honey that means his food it doesn't mean the, the, the bible's not claiming that wild honey is meat before anyone's like a oh, contradiction or some other crap i don't know people if you've seen my bible contradictions chart debunk series you'll know people will point at anything and say oh yeah that's a contradiction." Because the bar of contradiction is so bloody low these days, but uh, thankfully that makes it very easy for me to go and disprove them all. But anyway, so we see here John is going, and he, so he's following the kosher laws first of all, because remember they're still under the Mosaic Covenant. So John is following kosher laws, he's eating whatever he can find, but only if it's okay, and kosher is the food laws of the Jews, by the way, if anyone who doesn't know. So he's following the kosher laws, he's making sure he's only eating what's allowed. And of course, he's dressing in a certain way. He's dressing with camel's hair. He's got leather. Um, I'm guessing undergarments. That so the girdle around his loins, so that sort of thing. He's, you know, he's not living the luxurious life. That would be I can I can't imagine that's very comfortable. You know, like then people might have been wearing. I'm not sure they might have been wearing like linen, wool, that sort of thing. Might fine, nice stuff. Here's John. He's like, oh, there's some hair. I'll put that on the cloak. You know, like he's, he 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 doesn't care. He's just sort of like, do you know what? If I can survive, it can, if it can let me live, if it can get me by, and it's not sinful, it will do. I'm just here for God. I'm not here for me. And that is a level of commitment that I don't think we've seen in anyone since. Or at least we haven't seen in too many people since. There's no one that I know about. I'm sure there's probably been some people who've had that level of commitment. Let's drop my Bible. Yeah, I'm sure there's probably been some people who've had that level of commitment. Suffered dirty, And now it's clean. Okay, put it there. But yeah, so I I, like, I know I don't have that level of commitment. I know a lot of you don't have that level of commitment. I'm sorry, but I know you don't. You know, it's it's unfortunate that no one really has this sort of commitment anymore. But this just shows how much John loved God. I think he, you know, okay, God, I could like, I could go out into the cities and have fine houses and all this stuff and preach your word and at least, or at least live in some sort of relative comfort. But no, I'm going to go out. I'm going to just, I'm going to do what I can do to get by. I'm not going to live like a worldly man. I'm going to live the way the law says I should live and that's what he goes out and does or like he's he, he does it in a very I suppose modest way he does it in a way that's not very prosperity-esque and I think probably the mere inclusion of John in the Bible should probably be enough to turn anyone away from the prosperity gospel honestly but you know I think I, I can't imagine too many of them have read about John and if they have they're probably like oh well I suppose John didn't have enough faith he didn't get the plane Ah, oh, keep there's probably someone who claimed that John the Baptist didn't have enough faith. There you go. And actually, a fun story about his name. Um, it's actually John the Baptizer. But John the Baptist means pretty much the exact same thing. Obviously, nowadays, we have Baptist in terms of Baptist-like church. But back then, you know... Um, I think it just meant, at least when this is translated, it just meant baptizer. So he's John the Baptizer, but John the Baptist. And when we read that, we really get the same impression. Most people get the exact same impression reading baptizer as if they do reading baptist. You know, okay, he's someone who performs baptisms. Um, so for um, tradition's sake, they kept it as Baptist, which is uh, not something they usually do. But considering there's no confusion there, considering that despite the fact baptizer would technically be more correct, no one is confused by the inclusion of the word Baptist, well, they're, I think they were like, well, you know what, we'll just keep it in for tradition, it's a nice word, it's, it's John the Baptist, it's kind of what he's known as, and keep going with that, obviously, if it ever becomes a thing that Baptist just doesn't mean baptizer anymore, obviously, Bibles are going to stop calling him John the Baptist, um, they're going to start calling him baptizer, but, yeah, for now, he's just John the Baptist, even though it's technically John the Baptizer, but that's sort of getting into semantics. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around around about Jordan. And something I've heard recently preachers um, preach about is, all means all, all means all. Now that's true a lot of the time. That is true a lot of the time. A lot of the time, all means all. But people speak hyperbolically. People write hyperbolically. It's not true that literally every single person in Judea went out to John. That's just not true. What is true is that a fair number of people went. It might not even have been a majority. It might have been a minority because it might have been a big place. But enough people went out that everyone there was like, Oh, there is. There's a lot of people around here. You know? So. And, well, we're baptised of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. Um, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth, therefore, fruit, uh, fruits meet for repentance. So he's calling them to um, basically sacrifice because remember, they're still under the Mosaic Law. He's not trying to get them to follow the grace covenant, he's trying to get them to follow the covenant they're currently under. Obviously, that, co- that covenant is about to be fulfilled. I'm not sure whether or not John knows that, like whether he knew that or not. But at the moment, he's like, listen, we're in a covenant with God. Follow it. Whether he's going to overturn it later or not doesn't matter. You're in it, you follow it. And I think that's what he's trying to get them to do. Bring forth therefore fruit, sorry, that, um, and think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father, for I say unto you, that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees, therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruits hewn, hewn down and cast in, is hewn down and cast into the fire. Now that's obviously preaching about hell. People are always like, oh no, it's all symbolic. Well, yeah, that's symbolic. That's symbolic of hell. But no, oh, no, no, no. Hell is symbolic. What's it symbolic of? fly in here. What's it symbolic of? Oh, well, well it's, symbolic of, it's symbolic of um, bad bad things happening in your life. Well, okay, well, why doesn't he just say, if you do this, bad things will happen in your life? Why doesn't he say it literally even one time? Why is it always in symbolism? Here's the thing. Whenever Jesus preaches a parable, yeah, he preaches something that's symbolic, something that's purely symbolic, but he always afterwards goes through and explains what the parable... Explains? <laughs> My voice keeps cracking and he explains what the parable means. Whenever he's talking about the sower, he doesn't go, oh, there's a guy going on sowing, he's throwing seeds everywhere. And then, you know, he obviously says the full parable and then just leaves it there. He goes through afterwards and explains, okay, he throws the seeds here, this is representative of blah, blah, blah. He throws them here, this is representative of blah, blah, blah. So what's hell representative of? Well, Jesus always said, well, whenever he preached metaphorically about hell, He's always using some like something like that, you know, being cast into the fire, gehenna, something like that. But he never like says and you should be cast into the fire which is just symbolism for you'll have a bad life, lads. You know, like that's he never says that. And if that was what he was talking about, I think he would have said it. I think there's a good chance he would have said that. And where was i I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance but he that cometh after me is mightier than i who choose i am not worthy to bear he shall baptize you with the holy ghost and with fire so here's the thing john's here he's after rebuking these people he's after saying you're doing horrible you should do this you should do that you shouldn't be going about the way you're going and yeah we'll definitely get to the two chapters done you shouldn't be doing what you're doing i'm still going to baptize you if that's what you want and this kind of goes to show that despite God rebukes us, God, he's, you know, he he, 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 like, it's like with a parent, for example, because God is the Heavenly Father, obviously. It's like, if, if you do something wrong, your parent rebukes you. It's like, you're bold, you're naughty, you shouldn't do that. I still love you. You know, that sort of thing. So it's like, God is, he's angry with sin. He's angry at people because they sin. He doesn't hate them. He hates that they sin. He hates the sin inside them. He doesn't hate the people. And so... And that's the thing is, most people are like, oh, but if you hate something about someone, you hate that person. Obviously, referring to things like, you know, homosexuality and all that sort of thing, but that's not true. You think about, like, the example I always go to is smoking cigarettes. I, I know people who smoke cigarettes. I know someone who died because they got cancer because they smoked cigarettes. I love that person with all my heart. I hate the fact that they smoked cigarettes. I hate what it did to them. I love them. Right? So that's... That's how I sort of see it there, is, you know... <laughs> You hate the sin love the sinner and i know that's not anywhere in the bible but i do think it is a biblical enough con um concept which i'll probably do so some- i think i have done something it like before maybe a podcast or something maybe i'll do something else on it again um but yeah so he's saying look you you've done wrong you need to go off you need to repent i'm still going to baptize you despite the fact that i'm angry at what you've done god's forgiveness is for everybody there's no one beyond saving there's no one beyond forgiving not even the pharisees who so badly twisted the word you've done these horrible things I will still baptise you. Okay? Uh, and then there was something else after that. Um, oh yeah, um, so he who comes after me is mightier than I, whose shoe I'm not willing to unbuckle. Basically that just means he's a lot better than I am. So remember, John is meant to be one of the greatest men who's ever lived. And so there's someone coming after him who's, you know, dwarfs John in greatness, if you will. He's just so much greater than John is. And instead of um, baptising people, with water he'll come to baptize him with fire and that doesn't mean he's going to go around with a flamethrower and like that obviously it means he's going to baptize him with the fire of the holy spirit because here's the thing fire in the new testament is usually a symbol for cleansing so that's for example why or or something like that anyway something along those lines that's why i happen to believe that a lot of what's talked about in the bible about hell is symbolic i don't believe there will actually be fire i think it'll just be people left alone in this fast end like i think everyone will be alone in hell i don't think there will be like if let's say i go to hell i'll never see anyone again I'll just be by myself and slowly over time I'll go mad and mad and mad and I can be like three billion years later you know gone completely insane shell of my former self, a husk of my former self. I won't be a second closer to being finished in hell. So that's that's obviously if I go to hell, which I, I really hope I don't, um, but that, that's my personal belief about hell. Always people disagree with me and I think that's okay. I don't think it matters. I think it doesn't matter so much what we think hell is like. It more so uh, matters that we don't go there, you know, I'd rather just not find out from personal experience, you know what I mean, I'd rather as many, uh, as few people as possible found out, you know, I'd rather as many people as possible didn't find out from personal experience, but yeah, whatever hell is like, I just kind of hope I don't ever see it, and that's why, well, that's not why I have faith in God, I have faith in God for a few reasons, but you know, that that's a nice little bonus, Is not going to help. The main reason, of course, we, we, we love God is because he's God, we want to spend eternity with him. It's you know, it's not about going to heaven, it's about going to be with God. God just so happens to be in heaven. If God were to go to hell, we'd follow him down to hell. And then hell would become heaven and heaven would become hell. It's about God. That's all it's about. Eternity without God is hell, no matter what you say. Uh, where was I? Yeah, so he baptised you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. So he baptised you with the Holy Ghost. That's the Holy Spirit coming into you. That's the baptism that's, I think, necessary for salvation. And with fire, it's just a cleansing. And so that comes, that burns all the sin away from your life. That burns everything horrible you've ever done. That burns all the badness away from you. And you are renewed again, a a new creation. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee. No, sorry. Um, um, whose fan is in his hand. And he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into a garner. Um, But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Again, unquenchable fire, never-ending hell, never-ending torment. Whether or not fire is literal, we don't know. I just know that hell is a real place. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee um, to Jordan unto John to be baptised of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptised of thee, and comest thou to me. And Jesus answering answering, said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it uh, becometh us to fulfil all righteousness. That he, um then he suffered, uh him, and Jesus sorry, uh, Jesus when he was baptized I know I'm really bad reading guys I'm very sorry um went up straight away out of the water and lo the heavens were opened unto him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove, and lighting upon him, Uh <laughs> And low a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So let's see in the chapter three. So a bit more I I kinda just of read over it all there and I'll go back over it now. So Jesus comes along and he's like, Okay, I want to be baptized by you, John. My cousin. Good old good old John buddy. Well John no. I reckon he was called John John. Oh sorry that me being Irish for a minute. Okay, look. So he he came to John to say, I want you to baptize me and John's there going. Excuse me? Like, what, why do you want me to baptise you? I think the reason for this is Jesus, uh, Jesus. one of the things he tried to do was try to show us how to live the life of, like, under the grace covenant, how to show us how to live like that. And one of the things we're called to do is get baptised. Now, obviously there's a lot of different ideas and beliefs around this. I you know in Catholicism they believe baptism 100% necessary for salvation, Um, which I don't believe. I think that if you don't do it, if you just decide, and I don't want to get baptised, you're refuse, You're not showing fruits. If you're just refusing to do something God has called you to do, I think you're probably not saved. Not because you're not getting baptized, but because you're just disregarding the word of God or the commandments of God, whatever it's about. If you're just like, I don't want to do that, even though God tells me to, I don't want to. That's dangerous. That's a bad sign. Whether it's baptism, whether it's about swearing, it doesn't matter. Whether it's something we consider big or something we consider small, it doesn't matter because there's nothing God considers small. No sin no commandment that he considers a small one excuse me but so we we are called to get baptised whether or not you believe it's necessary for salvation we are called to do it Um so that's why I, th- I think that's why Jesus goes along and he gets baptised he's like okay I want to show you how to do this that's why Jesus prays you know he, he's the, the, the our father which we're going to get into Um I think I think we'll get into it in the next uh, next episode I'm not sure I think we will whichever one is, the Lord's Prayer, Um, whenever, whenever we get into it, he's like, you know, he, he's not actually even praying in that. He's not actually praying. Uh, he's just saying, look, when you pray, this is how you do it. And we know he's not praying because he says, forgive us our sins, which if he was praying would imply that he had sins, which he didn't. So we, we could just tell even from just that. He he wasn't praying. He was just saying, look, I don't need to say this. When you pray, this is what you say. Um, we see where Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane he he didn't say forgive us our sins or anything like that he was just talking straight to the father so oh no what else i sorry I come. I, I went off on a tangent there and I forgot where I was so yes yeah, so Jesus is trying to show us how to live a good life and part of that is being baptized and he wants to show us that and of course baptism is just representation I think it's my friend Jared from the old podcast um I, I recommend giving him a look uh he said he put I think it was him who said this it was um it's like wearing a wedding ring. If you take off your wedding ring, it doesn't mean you're not married. It is, however, very bloody suspicious. You know, if you go around as a married man with a whole wedding ring on, it doesn't mean you're being unfaithful. It doesn't mean you're not married. It's not usually a good sign. It's not, like, men don't tend to do that. I mean, fair enough, obviously, there's some... Ex- there are, of course, some exceptions. I know um, I know people who've, you know, ha- has had something happen where they had to take the ring off because maybe it broke, maybe... You know, something happened. Maybe it didn't fit them anymore. Something like that. They had to go get resized. There's, there's some reasons where it's okay. But gen ninety nine percent of the time, you're not wearing that ring. Something fishy's going on. Most likely, you know, men if they're going to the bar to pick up younger women, take off the wedding ring so they can cheat. And that's unfortunately something that happens. I'm sure women do that too. Um, you know, gonna include that for the old equality, feminism, all that. Okay, but seriously, don't so it's sort of the same with baptism maybe there's a reason you didn't do it maybe you only got saved because you know there's this one percent of exception maybe you only got saved because you know uh you only got saved recently just before you died and then you didn't get the chance maybe you just aren't able maybe there's nowhere around you that does baptisms maybe you just you just physically you just feasibly there is no way to do it maybe you're just in some position where there's just no way to do it in that one percent of situations I I wouldn't necessarily say it's fine, but I would say it's like, okay, that's in the situation That's the situation you're in. Try and get out of that situation so you can go and get baptised, do you know what I mean? But for the moment, I don't think there'll be any condemnation upon you for that. However, 99% of the time you don't get baptised, um, or like 99% of the time a Christian should be baptised. And if a Christian's going around and they're not baptised, it doesn't necessarily mean that they don't have faith in God. It is very, very suspicious. If they're just flagrantly disregarding this commandment. So I, I hope that makes um, sense. Um, what else? Oh yeah, so I actually covered this. I think or did I, I covered either this or the Mark version of this. Um, when I was talking about modalism. If you've seen that video. Basically modalism. I'm sorry, no, not modalism. But adoptionism. Adoptionism is the idea that Jesus was human and he there became God. And I think someone pointed to this passage. Or it was either this or the one in Mark. And said, okay, well here, this is Jesus becoming God. And it it, it it makes no sense. <laughs> like you know, it's like this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. First of all, this proves the trinity because it's Father, Son, and Spirit existing codependently, um separate of each other, all of them being God at the same time. Right? So this proves the Trinity, um that they're not all different modes that they're not all the same and all that sort of thing. But like the verse says, This is my son with whom I'm well pleased, and I think it was Bert Herman was like, See he's becoming God, which is you know let's say I had the son. And I'm like, hey, this is my son, Jim. And the person I'm talking to is like, oh, so he wasn't your son five minutes ago. He just became your son there. Like, I'd look at him like he was feckin deranged. Like, do you know what I mean? That's that's the stupidest possible thing you could... And Bart Herman, he's a smart man. I know he's a smart man. Smart men make mistakes, all right? But that has to be the stupidest thing you could get from that sentence. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to be rude, but, like, you know, can you imagine reading, this is my son, and deciding, okay, so he wasn't your son a few minutes ago. makes sense. Like... That's just ridiculous, like I have great respect for Ehrman as a historian, and all of that. I think hes I think he's probably a sound out lad, but you know like that's just ridiculous. All right, that's the end of chapter three. Now we're on to chapter four. Then was Jesus led up of the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil, so here we have the temptations of Christ, the three temptations of Christ. And when he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterwards and hungered. So here's the thing about Jesus. I don't know what he did for drink. I know the human body can survive a few months, either three to six months without food, I've heard, and three to six days without drink. So I don't know why he did with drink. Um, Maybe something like John just found when he could. Here's the thing. So 40 days is usually a period, like something to do with atonement or getting rid of sins. So, you know, um, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights with Noah's Ark. You know, I think there's other periods, other examples in the Old Testament of people doing 40 days and 40 nights. Um. so this is symbolic now that doesn't mean it didn't happen i think jesus really did do this for 40 days and 40 nights but i think he chose to do it for 40 days and 40 nights on purpose because of some other symbolic meaning and of course it's it's to do with atonement for sins and you might be thinking but jesus was sinless how can he be atoning for his sins that's not what i'm saying jesus isn't atoning for his sins he's going out and doing his 40 day 40 night thing this is the start of his ministry this is the start of his ministry is it, um, you know he's doing something symbolic for atonement of sins at the end of his ministry, he dies for sins. So it kind of comes full circle in a way. You know, the start of the ministry is the symbolism of how it will end. So this is sort of a clue as to like, you know, this is what I've come to do. This is one of the many things Jesus came to do, was die for our sins. And I think that's what's being shown here um, by this. Um, And also he's been tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. People often say, you know, Jesus was tempted just like everyone else. That's not true. Jesus wasn't tempted just like everyone else. He was tempted worse. How many of you have fasted for 40 days and 40 nights? Probably none. I know I haven't. I couldn't. I can barely do it for one day, you know. So here's the thing. Jesus at this moment is in a much weaker position than any of us will ever be in in our entire lives, for being completely honest. He is in a much weaker position and yet he doesn't crumble. We are in much stronger positions and yet we give in to temptation all the time. And it goes to show them how absolutely brilliant and moral God is, how good he is. Anyway. Um, and when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. So here's the thing. Obviously, he's, he's so hungry, 40 days without food, he would be starving. And the first thing the devil says is, feed yourself. That's the first temptation. Feed yourself. You know and of course he's in such a weak position food wise of course that'd be so tempting but what does he do watch this but he answered and said it is written man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeded out of the mouth of god and i think all of these come from deuteronomy if i remember correctly all of these things that jesus quotes comes from deuteronomy that i don't think there's any theological um importance to that that's just something i noticed it's maybe coincidence or something i don't think there's anything really important to that but still so all these things come from deuteronomy so he's saying you know man does not live by bread, he lives by the word of God. So that's uh that shows that while the old law was morally compromised, there was certainly some stuff in it that is good. Because that's the thing with a compromise, both sides get something. So there's some stuff that wasn't good, there was some stuff that was good, and the stuff that was good came from God, and Jesus is using the stuff that was good to make his point here. Alright. Then the devil taketh him, um Then the devil taketh him up into a holy city and set it him upon the pinnacle of the temple, and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear up and they shall bear thee up, um, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. And this is something interesting, because the devil's right here. He's telling the truth here. We see later on, when uh, during the Passion story, I think it's in Matthew, um, one of the apostles draws a sword, and Jesus says to them, Put your sword away. Do you not think that I could ask my father at this very moment? And he would have 12 legions of angels come down and destroy the world for my sake. So there is a, no point where Jesus is, any, is in any true danger, unless he allows himself to be. So Jesus could very much just... Ling himself off the cliff and ask God to bring the angels down to save him and they will come down and catch him and save him but (laughs) of course we'll we'll, we'll just read what Jesus has to say about this Jesus said unto him it is written again thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God so that word tempt doesn't necessarily mean tempt is in temptation it it more so means we we, we think of it as test these days don't test God don't be like God if you're real then xyz do you know like God, if you're real, then strike me down with lightning. Joe, so people do that crap. Um, like, you know, don't test God. You know, because here's the thing. God could pass every time if he wanted to. He doesn't want to. He said, you know, you're, you're testing me. No, how dare you? I'm not going to respond to you. You know, you're telling me, do this or I won't believe in you. Okay, don't believe in me then. I think that's kind of what he's saying here, is like, okay, I've given you all this evidence, I've given you my own son, to die on the cross, all of this stuff, and yet you're trying to test me, I don't think so. You know, so that, that's sort of, I think the message there is, don't like, don't act all high and mighty, like you're owed something by God, don't test God and be like, and, like he owns you, The he owes you the answer, he doesn't. You test God, he's just going to ignore you. Where was I? Um... And again the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and sheweth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory to them again. that thing of all means all, I don't think all means all here. I think there's two top th- there's two like camps of thought here there's two th- camps here it's basically. One is he showed them a vision of all the kingdoms of the world. The other is he just kind of took them up a high mountain and showed them as far as they could see and all the different stuff as far as they could see. And again, all being symbolic or metaphorical or hyperbolic in this sense. So I go with the second option. I think he just kind of hyperbolically all. It wasn't really all. It was hyperbolic. He's just showing them all the surrounding lands. And of course, then the devil says, um, All these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. And Jesus saith unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And, of course, that's, you know, just serve God, no one else, basically, there's nothing really I can add to that. But, of course, now the devil leaves, and this is after the third temptation, and again we see the repeating of the the, the, the repetitiveness, I don't know how you say it, basically the number three is here again. We see the number three repeated over and over and over again, um, because of its symbolic importance, because it's, you know, it's perfection, it's the per- the devil tempts him three times and he the perfect man rejects him three times the perfect rejection he, he's, he's perfect he's sinless he's all of this different stuff anyway so the de- then the devil leaveth him and behold angels came and ministered unto him now i'm not sure i haven't looked into the greek that word i'm not sure if it actually means they came and literally ministered unto him like they taught him stuff they're like you know okay jesus if we go to like the book here i'm not sure what that was of course there's like different ideas of how did jesus limit his intelligence or li- limit what he knew if he did how much did he limit it all of this stuff so i i really don't know about that um it could just be that they came gave him food and stuff uh, i'm really not too sure about that but the angels that came down so we know like this is confirmation of what satan said before the angels were ready to come down to him at any moment so the angels they came down they helped him in some way we'll go oh, what the translation says they ministered to him i'm not sure what the Theological importance of that is. I'm sorry, but so they can't, they come down. They minister to him. Where was I? Okay. Now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison he departed into Galilee and leaving Nazareth he came and dwelt in Capernaum um, which is upon the sea coast and in the borders of Zabalon and Naphtalim. and of course I pronounce it Capernaum Um, obviously I want to pronounce it Capernaum or however like uh, Capernaum or however you pronounce it but I watched the TV show called The Chosen which is a fantastic show I recommend anyone watch it it's it's great not like not 100% accurate to the Gospels but it's it's a TV show, you know, they're gonna take some number and I don't think there's any blasphemous in it, but anyway, I like it. So anyway, they call it Capernam in that. So or they call it Capernaum even in that, so I call it Capernaum instead of Capernaum. Just 'cause I have no I've I've no I've no idea what else to call it, you know. So I'm like, oh they call it um Capernaum, that's what I'll call it. Um, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah, which is again Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of and um, by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw great light, and to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is thrown up. From that time, Jesus began to preach to say, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And we see here shown how on the spot um, John was because this is exactly what John was saying. Now, I don't think Jesus plagiarized his sermons from John. Um, I think it's just John was so on the point that, you know, he ended up saying the exact right message that God himself would later preach because Jesus is God. You know, so... I think that's quite interesting. but um, he's, Again, he's saying repentance is the importance of repentance. You're like, oh, you don't need to repent. People say this, I've heard. You don't need to repent. It's a work. You don't need to do it. We, we believe in grace and faith-based salvation. And that's true. Repentance is a work. Oh, we don't believe that it saves us. It's, um, we're, we're saved by faith, the grace covenant. Here's the thing. This idea of this flagrant disregard of, of these things is like, you know, there's a difference between I don't need to do this but I will because I love God and I don't need to do this, so I won't. Now, most of the people don't do the second thing. They're like, we don't need to do this. Don't say it saves you. It doesn't, but we should still do it. And that's that's where I fall in. That's the camp I'm in. But I've heard some people are like, you know, if you don't repent, that's okay. It's works. It doesn't save you. That's, that's not good. If you're telling people that it's okay that they don't do good works, remember, good works are fruits. They show our faith. They are proof of our faith. If you do not have proof, And someone's telling you, "Oh, that's good," Uh, or not even that's good, but that's like, "Oh, that's okay." That you don't have proof of something. You don't have proof of this faith. Don't listen to that person because they're wrong. Those fruits don't save you, but if you don't have them, that's worrying because they're proof that you are saved. And if you if you don't have the proof, the proof doesn't save you. But if you don't have it, you can't really know that you're saved. You know. So be careful then with with how you preach that because it it, like, even if you believe the right thing, even if you like you do believe. Fruits are important, they don't save us, they're just a proof. Even just the wrong wording of that can lead people to believe that you say um, that that sort of thing is unimportant and that you shouldn't worry about it. Even if that's not what you mean to say, the wrong wording could be everything in that situation. So, where was I? Okay. And Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee, uh, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and of course, he was just called Simon at this stage, and I think, I, I do think him being called peter and um, his name being changed to peter is something we will cover in Matthew so when we get to that that should be interesting um, so, and his brother and and andrew his brother sorry um casting a net into the sea for they were fishers and he say, um says unto them follow me and i will make you fishers of men and of course it's, you know they cast the, rest, the net they pull in as many fish as they can now they're casting the net of the gospel and pulling in as many believers into the kingdom of heaven as they can and they straightway left their nets and followed him. Hold on. And going on from thence, he saw another two brethren, James, son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in a ship with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And they immediately left the ship and their father followed him. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. So, of course, the miracles Jesus did, he did miracles for a few reasons. For example, he did miraculous healings Um, for for two reasons. F- first of all, was to heal people, to help people um, and kind of prove, you know, okay, you're meant to be helping people. You know, he's, he's, he's God so he can do these miraculous things. But it's like, even if you're not God, even if you can't do these miraculous things, you should still try and do these things. Even if you can't heal people, you should still try and help people. I can do this because I'm God. I can heal them because I'm God. This is what I can do. You do what you can do. You Maybe you can't heal them, but if you have something, give it to them. If you can help them, you do help them. If it's in your power to help, you help. And the second thing is proof. Um, so jesus he didn't just want people to blindly follow him which is what a lot of people think he didn't want people to blindly follow him he was never like to the to the apostles or or disciples whoever like you know what lads just follow me what proof Oh no 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 none of that you follow me that's it no he's like okay watch this heal someone you see that i'm god there's your proof i i I think that's important that's you know that's important to know she's he was never like you know yeah, just, just believe me blindly, lads. Just, 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 just believe me blindly. Obviously, there's that thing of you know who you have seen and had faith, but blessed is he who has not seen and still has faith. I think that's just saying, look, if you even if you have have no proof and you still have faith in me, that that that's a good thing. That's a fantastic thing. But he's not saying there. What he's not saying there is you should not have evidence. You should not need evidence. He's saying, look, you still believe me even though you don't have evidence, which is great. But he never condemns evidence. You know, if, if he was against the idea of evidence, if he was not for the idea of evidence, he wouldn't have come back from the dead. See, that was the proof. Jesus came back from the dead to prove that he had defeated death, to prove that he had beaten it, that he had won. He did all these miracles, walked on water. Like, walking on water, like, you know, what, what, what was the meaning of that? Did he just want to go for a stroll? Was he just out for the crack? No, he was making a point, you know, which obviously led to someone, one of the disciples trying to walk on water with him, which is a thing we'll probably get into later. You know, so he's he's doing a lot to prove himself here. He he doesn't just want people to take his word for it. He's like, I am telling you that I am God. Here is the proof of my claims, and so that's that's one of the reasons why he goes around and he heals people. And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee and from Decapolis and Jerusalem uh from Judea and from beyond Jordan and so that's the end of chapter four so we'll end up here now so a lot of people don't realize there's three tiers to Jesus's followers there's the first tier which is just followers these are kind of people who just sort of um tagged along they're like oh he's 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 healing people oh wow and he's claiming he's God right well follow him then and then there's the disciples who were the people who among them because the, the followers just sat there and listened whenever he preached the followers just sat there and listened so the disciples actually went out and taught we see this later on he sent out disciples i believe he sent he sent them out they taught they went out they preached the word now the apostles the 12 apostles because obviously there's obviously still disciples today there's still followers today the age of the apostles is over i think paul was the last apostle i could be wrong about that i might have to i have to look into that but i think he was um so now we have the apostles, um, the twelve, uh, and again twelve um it being a number of spiritual significance, it means basically spiritual authority, that's why there's twelve apostles, it's spiritual authority. And so they're sort of Jesus' inner circle of followers and they're the ones that he trusts the most, that he hangs around with the most and so on and so forth, they're basically like the top dogs of of the disciples. um. And then of course there's the inner circle which I um, I spoke about last stream, I forgot who it is now, I think wasn't it Simon Peter, um, John and I'm going to say James because I've honestly forgotten I should, I, I I went over all this and I forgot who they were when I was going over it and I was like okay I need to look into this and I forgot again so I'm sorry about that but I think it was James, John, and Simon Peter were the inner three. Now, there wasn't anything particularly special about the inner three in terms of they were, like, higher than the apostles. They just did more stuff with Jesus. They were there at the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, He called Peter out to walk on water with him, obviously. So, they were still apostles. They were still kind of equal to the apostles in their responsibilities and their roles. It's just they were closer to Jesus. Um, so, yeah. And of course there's theories as to why, I th- I believe they think John was like the youngest, who wrote the Gospel of John was like the youngest, he was only like 14 when he followed Jesus. That's why his Gospel is so much later, you know, he was following him so much later, he lived a lot, or so much younger even, he lived a lot longer than the others because he was so much younger than them. Um, but that's just, that's just a theory, obviously we don't, we don't know. Um, but that's something interesting I guess to think about. So those are, th- those are sort of the, the tears the, the of his followers. And so, I think, I think it might be the end of the Sermon of the Mount, or it's after Jesus has said something, after he's preached something. He says, look, who among you, after hearing this message, will still follow me? And people, like, thousands of people just scatter. I'm being hyperbolic when I say thousands, obviously, but a bunch of people just scatter. They're like, no, I'm not, follow- I'm not following you after that, By Do you know, like... So he um so they leave and then all is left, I believe it's either only the apostles or only the apo- the apostles and the disciples, and that's something that confused me and that I think it's confused a lot of people when they get to that, they're like, wait hold on. We've got the twelve apostles who follow him, and then he says, Who will follow you? And then a bunch of people left, but then the twelve are still there. what You know, so that that's something that like might confuse people. But yeah, there is more than just the twelve. I think that is again in the book of Matthew, I'll have to see. If not I might do a video on it. Um but yeah, there's more than just the apostles there. There were also the disciples and just rando followers that she happened to pick up. And so people are always like, as well, less of like about Mary Magdalene and all the other people. People are like, oh, well, you know, we know the 12 apostles followed him. But we know other people followed him. Like we know Mary Magdalene is probably there. We know, was she an apostle too? Were all these people? No, they probably weren't. They're probably just disciples. If we know someone followed him, if there's like something like Mary Magdalene, or, and we don't know how often she was there, but if, if if there's evidence of someone having followed Jesus closely who was not in the Twelve, they were more than likely just a disciple. So they weren't like a, a missing apostle that they left out. They were just a disciple. There was probably a lot of disciples, and the Gospel authors didn't feel the need to include them. Um. So... I think that's going to be it for today. Obviously, next week, we're going to be doing, um, where is it now? We're going to be doing the Sermon on the Mount, which I believe is, is it three chapters? Chapter five, chapter six. Chapter six is the Lord's Prayer. Chapter seven. Um, Yeah, okay. So we'll try and do all three of those chapters next week, if we can. We might have to split that into two parts, the Sermon on the Mount so um, series, or story, or whatever. But anyway, I do hope you have enjoyed this um, uh, podcast, that's this episode of the podcast. Thank you for listening, and God bless.